This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We are on the final chapter of Artful Crimes. I couldn't conclude a series on crimes in the art world without an episode about an art theft. There have been many, unfortunately, over the years. One recent report counted 181 Rembrandts, 173 Warhols, and 609 Picassos stolen to date. But the story I have to share with you today is considered the art heist of the century. Because of the brazen nature of the robbery, the number of artworks they got away with, and the value of said artworks, said to be valued in total at over half a billion dollars. This is Chapter 4 of Artful Crimes, The Gardner Museum Heist. It was just after midnight on March 18, 1990, in Boston, Massachusetts. Some teens were just leaving a college dorm party. They weren't college students, but high schoolers who had crashed the party. St. Patrick's Day festivities were happening all over the city, and they took advantage of this to sneak into a place where it would be easy to score alcohol. They were leaving and trying to determine their next stop. On the way out, they were talking, laughing, and goofing around when they saw a small gray-colored hatchback car parked on the quiet street. Illuminated slightly by the streetlights, they could see that two uniformed officers were sitting in the front seat. They thought it was a bit odd that the officers were in such a small unmarked car, but they also thought it would be best to leave as quickly as possible. They were slightly drunk and underage, after all, and it wouldn't do to call attention to themselves. They soon left and the street was quiet once more. Not long afterwards, just after 1 a.m., the two men stepped out of the car and onto Palace Road. Directly in front of them stood the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. The Gardner Museum, opened in 1903, was built to resemble a 15th-century Venetian palace. It had three stories of galleries which surrounded a central garden courtyard. The museum's permanent collection holds over 2,500 paintings, sculptures, tapestries, manuscripts, and other rare works of art. Isabella Gardner, daughter of a wealthy linen merchant, and John Lowell Gardner, her husband, who made a fortune investing in ships, mining, and railroads, collected art during their many travels around the globe. When their collection grew too large to be displayed in their home, Isabella decided to build a museum where the public could enjoy her vast collection. The Gardner Museum is the only privately held art collection in which the building, collection, and installations are all the creation of one individual. Some of the artists who are represented in the collection include Michelangelo, Botticelli, Titian, Raphael, and American artists like Whistler and John Singer Sargent. Isabella was friends with Sargent, and he even used the museum's Gothic room as a studio. Before her death in 1924, Isabella created an endowment of $1 million for the ongoing support of her museum. One stipulation was that the permanent collection not be altered. None of the works were to be sold or traded. She wanted to keep the collection largely intact as she had created it, and it would continue to be so from 1924 until that fateful day in 1990. The two men, dressed in dark blue uniforms, wearing police hats and dark nylon knee-length coats, walked up to the side entrance of the museum and pressed the buzzer. On duty that night were two security guards, Rick Abbott was a student at the nearby Berkeley College of Music. He played in a rock band in local bars and clubs, 
and supplemented his income as a museum security guard. A second guard had been called in to work at the last minute earlier that evening, when another employee called in sick. The outside bell buzzed Abbott on duty at the security desk at 1.24 a.m. Answering the intercom, he heard a male voice say, Police, let us in. We heard about a disturbance in the courtyard. Looking at the security camera that captured video at the door, he saw two men in uniforms with badges. Abbott was a 23-year-old who was not in love with his job. A wannabe rock star, he cut a strange figure at the museum. He had waist-length curly hair that he wore in a ponytail. He wore loud t-shirts and a cowboy hat most nights. He would talk about his boring job as a security guard to friends and at bars where his band played. He would complain about the low pay and the lack security at the museum as well. Now he was a bit annoyed. There had already been two false alarms that night. A half an hour earlier, a fire alarm had gone off in the conservation lab on the fourth floor. There was no fire. Then, a few minutes later, a fire alarm went off in the carriage house. Again, he saw no signs of any fire or any other disturbance. Maybe someone had gotten into the carriage house or the courtyard, he thought. The protocol was never to let anyone into the museum who was not authorized. Even so, Abbott buzzed the men inside. When they approached the security desk, one of them asked if there was anyone else in the building. Abbott told him that just one other guard was on duty. Get him down here, he instructed. Abbott summoned him on the walkie-talkie. While waiting for the other guard to arrive, one of the men looked at Abbott and said, You look familiar. I think we have a default warrant out on you. Come here and show me some ID. Abbott was now nervous, wondering what he might be in trouble for. He came around from the security booth, now out of reach of the panic button that can be used to signal an emergency. The second guard arrived. The other police officer grabbed him and pushed him up against the wall and began to frisk him. Why are you arresting me, he asked him. Abbott was also pushed against the wall, and his arms were quickly grabbed and held behind his back. This is a robbery, one of them said. Don't give us any problems, and you won't get hurt. They took duct tape and wound it around the guards' heads, covering their eyes and mouths. Then they transferred them down the stairs to the basement and separated them into two different rooms. Abbott was secured to a steam pipe and the other guard to a workbench. Before they left them, they took their wallet, saying, We know where you live. Do as I say, and no harm will come to you. Don't tell them anything, and in about a year, you will get a reward. Now the two men headed back upstairs alone. They had the run of the place. There were no other guards who would be arriving until the morning. No hidden cameras, no tripwires or other security measures. Later, motion detector records would show their path through the museum. They first entered the Dutch room, where their plan was to grab a large Rembrandt. However, when they approached the painting titled The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, an alarm sounded. The large painting was one that viewers often would stand too close to, trying to get a look at one of the figures in particular. Rembrandt had painted himself in as one of the sailors on the storm-tossed boat. He's the only one looking out and directly at the observer. Because of the danger of fingerprints or even damage should someone get too close and fall and poke a hole in the canvas, the museum had installed an alarm that would sound if a person reached the boundary around the painting. The alarm, however, was not connected to any outside sources. It was simply a warning for the guards to shoo the curious away from the painting. While it must have startled the robbers, they quickly disabled it by kicking it silent. The thieves took the painting down from the wall and smashed it out of its frame. They then took a blade, most likely a box cutter, and cut the painting out of the frame. 
Next, they moved on to another Rembrandt titled A Lady and Gentleman in Black. Again, they broke the frame and cut the painting out of its stretcher. In the same room, a small painting titled The Concert was sitting on a table in a stand. They lifted it out of its stand and took it away. They had now stolen one of the most valuable paintings in the world. It was painted by Vermeer in 1633, and there are only 36 known paintings by the artist in existence. Acquired by Isabella Gardner at a Paris art auction in 1892 for $5,000, it is said to be worth as much as $300 million today. It is unknown whether the thieves had a set list of artworks they were targeting to steal, but it seems that they became more bold, perhaps realizing that they were in no danger of being caught. They began to act like kids in a candy store. They crisscrossed the museum, taking paintings and artworks willy-nilly. It seems, however, that these thieves were no art experts. They took some paintings seemingly at random, some far less valuable than others, that would have been easier to remove and much more valuable. They took a painting by Govert Flink, a student of Rembrandt's, which most likely they thought was a Rembrandt. They also took a very small self-portrait by Rembrandt and an ancient Chinese goblet from the Dutch room before heading down a hallway filled with masterpieces and into a smaller room called the Short Gallery. There, under the watchful eye of Isabella Gardner herself, her portrait painted by Andrew Zorn adorned one wall. The thieves took five-day gauze sketches, snapping the pictures out of their frames. The sketches were unfinished doodles done by the French Impressionist as studies for future paintings. They ignored a drawing by Michelangelo hanging nearby. In the corner of the room, a battle flag from Napoleon's Imperial Guard caught their eye. They started to unscrew the glass case that protected the flag, removing several screws before giving up and simply ripping off the eagle finial that sat on top of the flag, taking that instead. Finally, they took one more painting before leaving. On the ground floor, they seized Edward Manet's Chez Tortoni. They headed down to the basement to check on the bound security guards, asking them, Are you comfortable? Handcuffs too tight? Finally, before taking their leave, they kicked open the security director's office door, ripped open the video recorders that had recorded their entrance, and took the tapes. They also tore out the data printouts that had recorded the motion detector data and took that with them as well. They would leave no visual data of the robbery, but the data recorded by the motion detector had also been stored on the hard drive. At 2.45 a.m., the art thieves left the building through the museum's side door. They had been inside the Gardner Museum for 81 minutes and had stolen 13 works of art worth over half a billion dollars. At 6.45 a.m., the museum's maintenance man arrived. He would normally buzz to be led into the museum by the security guard on duty, but today they went unanswered. A few minutes later, the day security guard arrived. Since they could not get in, they called their supervisor, who arrived about 10 minutes later, to open the door with the master key. They entered to a completely silent museum, with no one on duty at the security booth. At that point, the supervisor called 911 to report a breaking and entering in progress, as this was the protocol. There was no way for them to know if the burglar or burglars were still in the building, and they were not supposed to investigate on their own for their safety. A detective and other officers arrived minutes later. Beginning on the fourth floor, they canvassed the museum room by room, noting the damage and items that were obviously missing. It took over 20 minutes for them to reach the basement, where they found the two security guards still handcuffed and bound with duct tape. The Dutch room had the most damage, 
paintings were gone, and the broken frames were scattered around. There were paint chips left behind where the robbers had cut the canvases with box cutters to remove them from the frames. These were carefully collected and tagged as evidence. The museum director would make a careful inventory of anything that might have been taken during the robbery. But with over 2,500 items to check off, it would take some time. It wasn't until the following Tuesday when the filial from the top of the battle flag was discovered missing. The museum had no insurance coverage for the stolen artworks. This was for a couple of reasons. The first was the cost. The insurance premium to cover the value of the museum's collection would have been $3 million annually. The annual total budget for the museum was only $2.8 million. But a policy could have been purchased to cover up to $10 million in losses for only about a $10,000 to $50,000 annual premium. But the clause that Isabella Gardner had provided in her will stated that the museum could not alter the collection in any way meaning that it could not sell any of the works or purchase more items for the collection. So even if the museum had insurance, they would not be able to purchase replacement artworks. The other problem was that the insurance underwriters would normally offer a large reward for the return of stolen property. But without insurance, no reward would be available. Soon, however, one of the museum's board members, Arnold Hyatt, would solicit the top auction houses, Sotheby's and Christie's, for their help in raising funds for a reward. Three days after the robbery, a $1 million reward was offered for information leading to the safe return of the stolen art. The money would be paid, no questions asked. FBI agents were called in to head the investigation and hopefully recover the stolen objects. Agent Dan Falzone would be tasked with leading a team of 30 investigators. The investigation would consume years of his life. Fun fact, Dan Falzone's father was Detective Frank Falzone, who had been with the San Francisco Police Department for many years. Falzone Sr. was instrumental in the Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. Night Stalker, investigation. He had helped identify clues as to his identity when Ramirez made a brief trip to Northern California, where he committed at least two more murders. Dan Falzone had followed his father into the San Francisco Police Department and, as a rookie cop, had assisted his father on the Ramirez investigation before leaving to join the FBI. Of course, the detectives first started with the two security guards on duty that night. The majority of museum thefts have proven to be inside jobs are pulled off with the help from an employee. The older guard, who has only been named under a pseudonym, was cleared by a polygraph test. The younger guard, Rick Abbott, fell under suspicion quickly. First, he was the one who let the men into the building. Second, he had put in his resignation to the museum two weeks before the robbery. Third, his polygraph test came back inconclusive. And fourth, and most damning, was the last painting that was stolen, the Manet, had been taken from the ground floor blue room. But the motion detector didn't record anyone in that room between 1.24 and 2.45 a.m. when the robbers were in the building. The last movement in the room was detected earlier that night, when Abbott made his rounds throughout the building. Had he taken the painting and then left it in one of the other rooms for the thieves? The frame for the Manet painting was left on the security director's chair, near the security booth, almost like a calling card. It was later learned that most people, the guards included, weren't that concerned about a museum robbery. They would regularly let people in after hours. Friends might stop by, Other employees who weren't on duty might come by to hang out in the evenings when the museum was closed. Even pizza delivery drivers were let in the building at times. 
they just never seriously considered that someone would try to rob the museum. Which is problematic, seeing that art theft was a big problem and on the rise in the 1980s. As recently as 1989, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, just down the street from the Gardner, had been robbed of a 14th century Chinese vase, an art gallery had been robbed at gunpoint not far away, and over half a dozen private homes had been robbed of their artworks as well. Even the Gardner Museum had been robbed of a small Rembrandt painting. The thief had created a distraction by throwing a bag of light bulbs on the floor before absconding with a tiny Rembrandt self-portrait in 1970. Another plot had been discovered in 1982, allegedly by the mob, to throw a grenade in the courtyard of the Gardner Museum and make off with a Matisse and several other paintings. In 1981, the security system at the Gardner was upgraded. Closed-circuit cameras were installed, as well as motion detectors in the galleries. More security guards were hired. While there was a plan to wall off the security booth by a glass wall, it was scrapped due to lack of funds. But very little evidence was available to aid in the investigation. Fingerprints were taken from the frames and other pieces left behind, but since the museum was open to the public, there would be no way to tell which might belong to the robbers, and most of the prints were only partial prints and not very helpful. The FBI continued to run down hundreds of leads, put out feelers in the art community to see if anyone was trying to unload the Gardner art, and also waited to see if any ransom demands were made for the return of the stolen art, as was sometimes the case. But months and then years passed without any information that led them to the stolen goods. Four years later, the museum received a typed anonymous letter. The writer demanded $2.6 million in ransom, as well as full immunity for the return of the stolen art. They were told to have the Boston Globe publish the number one in the U.S. to foreign dollar exchange listing for the Italian lira. They did so. A second letter then arrived in which the sender complained that law enforcement was involved in the response. They wrote, You can have the paintings or make an arrest. You can't have both. After that, no more letters arrived. When the FBI had no success locating the art by 1997, the Gardner Museum Board of Trustees decided to offer a $5 million reward for the safe return of the stolen goods out of their own pockets. That same year, an antique dealer with a criminal past named William Youngworth contacted a Boston Herald crime reporter named Tom Mashberg, telling him he could take him to the paintings. He took Mashberg out to a Brooklyn warehouse in the middle of the night. Once there, he removed a large tube from a bin and unrolled a painting from inside it. By flashlight, Mashberg saw what looked to be an aged painting that Youngworth said was Rembrandt's The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. Youngworth was going up on theft charges soon and said Mashberg should tell the authorities that he'd seen the painting and Youngworth would hand it over if he was promised immunity. He also showed the reporter a half a dozen other tubes stored in the unit, implying that they contained the other gardener pieces. Mashberg was given some paint chips that Youngworth said were proof that this was the painting. They were analyzed by an expert that said they did appear to be from a Dutch old master canvas, but he couldn't definitively say that they were from the Sea of Galilee painting. The feds, however, didn't believe Youngworth and said that they would need direct proof and they also weren't willing to offer full, but only partial immunity. Youngworth rejected the offer and never gave them any additional proof. He was found guilty on the theft charge and sentenced to several years in prison. Later, it was determined that the painting he showed Mashberg could not have been the Sea of Galilee painting. That painting had been painted on a canvas that would not be flexible 
like a normal canvas that could be rolled up. It was said by experts it would be like trying to roll up a thick piece of cardboard. This was not what was shown to the reporter. Investigators moved on to other leads. They soon found that there was no shortage of possible suspects, from art thieves to criminals who fenced high-value stolen goods, and more challenging still, they would have to untangle a whole web of organized crime figures. One person of particular interest was David Turner. Turner began as a typical suburban kid, growing up a few miles south of Boston. When he was still a teen, his father died of a massive heart attack. He seemed to be without an anchor after his father's death, drifting first to the Marines before receiving an early discharge, coming back to live with his mother and taking a few community college classes. But then, unfortunately, he seemed to find a father figure in an underworld figure named Carmelo Merlino. Merlino was a South Boston mobster who, with his gang, had a history of illegal gun trading, armored car heists, and cocaine distribution. Turner looked up to the mobster and hung out at Merlino's place of business, an auto body shop on Dorchester Avenue. He soon began working for Merlino, first running drugs, and then as he gained his trust, becoming an enforcer for the mob boss. In time, Turner became more ruthless and more feared. He shot and killed a man named Lenny DiMuzio, who he discovered had stolen money from him. He left DiMuzio's body to rot in the back of a parked car under a Boston bridge. He would also murder Charlie Pappas, a man who had been one of his best friends growing up. Pappas had introduced Turner to Merlino, but when he was picked up for distribution of cocaine, Pappas agreed to turn state's evidence against Turner in the DiMuzio murder for a reduced sentence. A few days before the murder trial, Turner's hired guns followed Pappas to his girlfriend's home and shot him several times in the doorway. Pappas was able to crawl into the kitchen in an attempt to get away, but they followed him inside, firing one shot directly into his mouth, sending him a message about snitching, no doubt, before disappearing into the night. There wasn't enough evidence to charge Turner with Pappas's murder, and without his former friend's testimony, he also skated on the other charges as well. Turner's name was added to the list of possible suspects in the Gardner heist early in the investigation. Sources who were informants for the FBI said that Turner claimed to have access to the paintings. They tried to match his prints with some of the fingerprints from the robbery, but were not successful. Throughout the years, several suspects would claim to have access to the paintings and try to negotiate for their return for reduced sentences or other favors. In 1992, Carmelo Merlino did just that when he was in prison for drug charges. Merlino told the feds that the deal had to be kept quiet or he'd be killed, but he was never able to produce any hard evidence that he knew where the art was being kept. A source within Merlino's crew, Richard Fatman Tchaikovsky, told the FBI that David Turner was one of the Gardner thieves. They went back to Merlino and made a deal. If he could return the Gardner paintings, they would not prosecute him or Turner or any of their associates for the robbery. But it was soon discovered that Merlino probably didn't have direct access to the art and was trying to secure it through another unnamed party. Then Merlino and Turner were arrested in 1999 for attempting to raid a Loomis armored car depot. The agents believed Turner might give up the Gardner paintings in order to get out of the charges, but he denied everything. He was found guilty on weapons charges and attempting to steal $50 million from the depot and was sentenced to 38 years. Merlino received 47 years in prison. Miles Connor was another person of interest in the Gardner heist. Connor came from a privileged background and was also academically gifted. 
But early in his life, Connor went another way. At age 17, he took up the guitar and started a rock band. He would play clubs around the Boston area, but he seemed to enjoy working the crowds into a frenzy, often starting riots in the audience, which his father, a police officer, was sometimes called to shut down. He began getting into brawls in the bars himself. He soon found himself in the company of mob bosses and other organized crime figures. He committed his first theft of the Forbes House Museum in Milton in 1965 when he was 22 years old. He stole a huge haul, including paintings, sculptures, silverware, and urns. After that, he began stealing from museums regularly, and when the police tried to arrest him on a warrant, he exchanged gunfire with them. He was hit several times and spent a year in the hospital recovering from his wounds before being sent to jail. Once released, he embarked on even more robberies. He robbed almost every art museum on the eastern seaboard, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., as well as banks and warehouses. He was even suspected of murder. He got arrested several times, but the authorities couldn't make the charges stick, until 1988, when they sent in an undercover officer claiming to be an art fence, who Connor sold art and then a kilo of cocaine to. It was at that point that the FBI moved in and arrested him. In 2000, a private art detective, Harold Smith, met with Connor to see what he might know about the Gardner robbery. Connor had just been released from prison. Two years earlier, he had suffered a massive heart attack in prison and spent two weeks in a coma. His health was severely debilitated, his speech was slow and slurred, and his long-term memory was spotty. Smith got Connor to confess that he had cased the Gardner Museum in the late 1980s. However, he had been arrested before he could pull off the heist. He and an accomplice, Bobby Donati, had planned it together, he said. After Connor was sent to prison, Donati teamed up with another man, an ex-con named David Houghton, to rob the gardener. Houghton supposedly had hired other thieves to hide the loot. Connor said Houghton had visited him in prison and told him that he and Donati had pulled off the robbery. He told Connor he would use some of the stolen art to bargain to get him out of jail. That was the last information Connor remembers having about the Gardner robbery. Bobby Donati was murdered in 1991. His body was found in the trunk of his car with his throat slashed. His killers were never identified. Houghton died in 1992 of a heart attack. Harold Smith also met with an art fence who was working with the police as an informant. He told Smith that an associate of his, Antonio Margiota, was once offered the stolen Gardner paintings. He was selling antiques in Florida and was approached by a man who told him he'd sell him the whole lot for $10 million. Margiota tried to bargain him down to $1 million. The man declined the offer, and Margiota never heard from him again. The man who'd offered to sell him the stolen masterpieces was none other than Whitey Bulger. James Joseph Whitey Bulger was a well-known organized crime figure in South Boston. He was the undisputed head of the Irish-American crime mob, the Winter Hill Gang. Bulger was widely feared as a ruthless and cruel enforcer. He was eventually convicted of 19 counts of murder. Not content to merely rub out his enemies, he often tortured them before killing them. In 1975, Bulger was approached by a man he'd grown up with in South Boston, John Connolly. Connolly had taken the opposite route out of their poor neighborhood becoming an FBI agent. Now, he asked Bulger to become an informant. In return, Connolly promised to look out for him and his crew, 
Besides the get-out-of-jail-free card that Connolly dangled in front of him, Bulger also saw the opportunity to pass along information that would lead to the removal of many of his Italian-American mob rivals in La Cosa Nostra. Bulger helped Connolly take down many of these rivals, and he then would swoop in to take over their territory, thus making himself richer and more powerful. The story about the FBI and Whitey Bulger was told first in the book and then in the recent movie, Black Mass. But Connolly's being in bed with Bulger may have thwarted the ability of the FBI to find the Gardner loot early on in the investigation. In 1991, the feds were able to plant a listening device in Carmelo Merlino's auto body shop. They placed it in the ceiling right above the desk where he would hold his meetings. But just hours after the bug was planted, Merlino inexplicably began having his conversations not in his office, but instead outside in the parking lot. It was believed that Whitey Bulger had heard about the bug from Connolly and then tipped off Merlino. It's possible that if Merlino hadn't been tipped off about the feds listening into his conversations, they may have been able to catch him talking about who had pulled off the heist and where the paintings might be stashed. To add more credibility to Whitey Bulger's knowledge of the whereabouts of the stolen art, one of the biggest drug runners in the area, Joe Murray, told FBI agent Robert Fitzpatrick early in 1992 that he was sitting on stolen paintings from, quote, the biggest art heist ever. Murray was firmly embedded with the Winter Hill Gang, Whitey Bulger's crew. But within weeks of the call to the agent, Murray was found shot to death in his home in Maine. His wife claimed he had attacked her with a knife and she'd shot him in self-defense. Fitzpatrick believed that Bulger might have been involved in Murray's killing. There were problems with Murray's wife's story and most didn't believe she could have been the shooter. Bulger wasn't suspected of having pulled off the heist himself, or even having his crew do it. It wasn't his type of crime. Instead, it was believed that if a score of that size, over $500 million in stolen goods, had happened in his backyard, Whitey would make sure to find out who had pulled it off and then get his cut of the profits. But Bulger's time was nearing its end. In 1994, a joint task force of the Drug Enforcement Agency, the Massachusetts State Police, and the Boston Police Department began to build a case against Bulger for his illegal gambling operations. The FBI, now known to be compromised, was not informed. Bulger had planned for years in the event that he would have to go on the run, stashing money, passports, and false identification papers, and now he put them to good use. On December 23, 1994, he left Boston. Bulger traveled extensively and was not seen again for almost two decades. The FBI believed that Bulger had control over the Gardner paintings until he went on the run in 1994. He was a man to keep secrets, and they thought if anyone could keep them hidden, he could. Sometime later, it was reported that Bulger had shipped the art at some point to Dominic McGlinty, the head of an Irish paramilitary group. The Irish-American mob had long supported the IRA. In 1984, Bulger had helped organize a massive arms shipment to the IRA. Seven tons of weapons were sent on a commercial fishing vessel named the Valhalla. It was very possible that the same ploy was used, this time, instead of stowing handguns, shotguns, and AK-47s, they transported works of art worth millions of dollars across the Atlantic. Once the artworks arrived on the coast of Ireland, the IRA groups would be very knowledgeable about what to do with them. Republican groups had been involved with art heists from museums, churches, and private homes for many years. They were particularly fond of Vermeer's as well. 
at least three Vermeers were believed to be stolen by IRA groups. They masterminded an armed robbery of a private residence in 1974, where they stole several paintings, including a Vermeer, that was worth more than $20 million. The group then demanded a ransom of $40 million and the release of four Irish political prisoners. Instead, the police conducted a massive door-to-door search, and their efforts paid off when they found one of the nationalists in a small secluded cottage, with the Vermeer found inside and the other paintings discovered in the trunk of a car. But Whitey was now on the lam, and Dominic McGlinchey had since been murdered. If he'd had the paintings, they now would have fallen into the hands of his crew. If so, the cachet of masterpieces might be sitting stashed somewhere in safe houses in the rural west coast of Ireland. Those are some of the theories of where the Gardner treasures might be, and why they have never been used as a bargaining chip by the many crooks and con men who claim to know where they can be found. So far, none of them have been located. But the question still remains, who were the actual robbers? We know there were two men in the museum, at least. But who were they? After years of investigation, tips and leads, the most likely suspect seems to be David Turner. On the night of the Gardner heist, one of the teens got a pretty good look at one of the men in the car parked outside of the museum. The teen's name was Jerry Stratberg. The next day, he heard about the theft and went to the police with his information. He said the police took the report, but didn't seem to take him too seriously. He felt annoyed that they didn't give his information more weight. No one ever followed up with him, and he was never asked for any more information. He'd never even been asked to look at mugshots. It wasn't until the author Ulrich Bozer was writing his book, The Gardner Heist, in the early 2000s, that Stratberg was shown photos of possible suspects to see if he recognized anyone. Bozer laid out the photos of Bobby Donati, David Turner, and two other men, and asked him if he recognized anyone. It had been over 15 years, but Stratberg thought the man he'd seen on that night resembled David Turner. So if one of the men was Turner, who was his accomplice? A second suspect in the FBI files was George Reisfelder. Reisfelder had a long criminal history, including armed robbery. He was a violent person who would snap over anything. His ex-wife reported that he would go insane about absolutely nothing, his eyes like red and white tops spinning in his head. She said, my nights were plagued with him waking me, choking me, calling me everything imaginable, punching me, accusing me of thinking of someone else. Reisfelder was tied to Carmelo Merlino's drug ring, and thus to David Turner. He's also a dead ringer for the police sketch that was created right after the robbery with the help of the security guards. He has the same square jaw, crooked mouth, and lined cheeks as depicted in the sketch. Turner was also a close match to the drawing of the taller robber. He has the round cheeks and slanted eyes, just as described by the witnesses. The FBI has long suspected Turner and Riesfeld to be the actual robbers, and it's possible that Bobby Donati, David Houghton, or both, may have also been accomplices. They would have needed a larger vehicle, like a van, to transport the artworks. Turner was seen in a small hatchback that wouldn't have been nearly big enough to carry off their haul. Houghton then, as a getaway driver, may have taken credit for the heist, as he reported to Miles Connor while he visited him in prison. Either way, the FBI believes the stolen art would then have been transported somewhere else for safekeeping. And who was in control or even knows where it is, is now unknown. Ulrich Bozer, the author of the book about the Gardner heist, received a letter from David Turner from prison. 
He had been writing to Turner about the heist, and he then received this poem from him titled, The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, like the Rembrandt painting. The poem portrays Turner as one of the disciples that is being tossed in the boat. David Turner cries out so desperately, he wrote, Save me, Lord, save me, for the ship is going down. Bozer believes this is Turner taunting him. He can't help but brag about being the person who pulled off the heist of the century. Bozer also gives his theory as to why no one has come forward about the lost masterpieces. Surely someone would have tried to leverage this knowledge in some way by now. And in my opinion, if Whitey Bulger had access to them or still had knowledge of their whereabouts, he certainly would have tried to trade this information either to cut a deal when he was in hiding or after when he was finally caught in 2011 and sentenced to two terms of life imprisonment. Bozer explains that everyone else who might have had knowledge of the whereabouts of the stolen art are all dead, all murdered. Lenny Demuzio, once suspected of being one of the robbers, was found murdered in the trunk of his car in 1991. Investigators believe Turner was the killer. Bobby Donati was killed in September of 1991, also found dead in his car. Turner again is listed as a suspect. Charlie Pappas, Turner's old friend, was also murdered, and his death is also tied to Turner. George Riesfelder was found dead of cocaine poisoning one year after the robbery. Many also believe that his death was a target killing. Today, the frames of the missing masterpieces sit empty in the Isabella Gardner Museum. As per her wishes, the collection has not been altered. The missing pieces are conspicuously absent in their empty frames. It makes you feel the loss of these stolen treasures all the more acutely. The $5 million reward for the return of the art still stands. The investigation is still active, and detectives still follow every lead they receive. In 2013, investigators announced they believed that they had identified who the robbers were. However, they did not yet know where the artworks were being hidden. Even if they know who committed the robbery, they could not prosecute the criminals now. The statute of limitations on the theft ran out in 1995. In 1994, Senator Edward Kennedy added an art theft provision into the Federal Crime Act. The theft of major artwork law extended the statute of limitations for receiving and transporting of stolen property from five years to 20 years. The new law also made it a federal crime to steal, receive, or dispose of any cultural object worth more than $100,000. The Gardner Museum has become one of the most secure art institutions in New England. Video cameras are monitored by trained guards watching over every floor, room, and corner of the galleries. Night vision cameras track the streets surrounding the buildings. There is a guard in every gallery and a hidden control room. There was one more recent development in the case. In August of 2015, police released a video. The videos taken on the night of the robbery had been taken by the robbers, but the tapes from the night before were still available. On that tape, recently released to the public, Security guard Rick Abbott is seen buzzing in an unknown man. The man, wearing a long coat with an upturned collar, is seen first backing up a car to the side entrance, the same entrance the thieves would use the next night, getting out and buzzing the door. Abbott then opens the door and admits him inside. The FBI is now trying to determine the identity of the man. It is unclear when they first obtained this video, but they recently decided to share it with the public in hopes that someone may recognize the person in the video or have more information. One question is, was this a dry run for the robbery the next night, or just an innocent coincidence? 
Rick Abbott has long denied knowing the robbers or having anything to do with the museum heist. He now lives a quiet life in Vermont. David Turner is still incarcerated, and his original release date was not scheduled until at least 2032. It has recently been reported that his sentence was reduced and his new release date is set for 2025. This has some speculating that Turner is ready to share information about the whereabouts of the stolen art. We can only hope. If you have any information about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, you can contact Anthony Amore, Director of Security at the museum, at area code 617-278-5114, or email theft at gardnermuseum.org. There is still a $5 million reward for the safe return of the stolen art, as well as an additional $100,000 reward for information leading to the return of the Napoleonic finial. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I hope you enjoyed the series Artful Crimes. Next month, we'll be back to the usual murder mayhem with a new series dedicated to love. And since you love true crime, I know you will enjoy it. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.